been an interesting couple weeks as far as our church and um, people in our county, community. Um, I'm not thinking of my thoughts. I'm trying not to cry. So just <laughs> but absorbing hurt Um, my heart just feels uh, heavy. So let's, let's pray for a little bit. Father, you are a God that comforts. You're a God that loves us. And you are a God who is sovereign over all things. I believe that, Father, at the very core of who I am. Simultaneously, Lord, um, the pain really, really does hurt. And this life is <clears throat> sin-cursed and uh, bad things happen. And uh, Lord, Father, for where else could we turn but to you? You are our master. You are our Lord. And Lord, you're our savior, our rescuer. You come when nobody else can. You do work that nobody else would even think about doing. And you carry us and sustain us, dear Father. And so, Lord, seeing the, the pain and the difficulty in a few particular lives, but also, Lord, just the, the, the consistent difficulties in the lives of our, of our body here, Lord, I, um, I love this church. And um, God, where else would we go but to your word this morning? And I pray, dear Father, that uh, you would uh, help me not to be a, a distraction from the truth and from the, the beauty and majesty and glory of yourself, Father, and revealed in your word, but I could just, just be an instrument. And um, Father, your, your spirit would take your word, and Father, you would powerfully sow that seed of the truth in the hearts of your people. You'd strengthen their hands, you'd refresh their hearts, Encourage them, Father. And Lord, you would sustain us and protect this body. Lord, what a, uh, what a magnificent thing that we are redeemed. And the Apostle Paul's 
exposition, what he says within these 16 chapters, are worthy, beyond worthy, of our enduring study. So Lord, please walk with us as we move forward. And um, I pray, I pray for your rich blessing on Pacific Coast Bible Church. Not, dear God, that we would just be smart people or, or Bible brainiacs, but want to be obedient. Want our, our doing, our living, our talking, Father, to be in line of the, the truth. And that, Father God, we would not just be Christians in name only, but in that you are master, you are Lord, we are servants, Lord. So let us crack open the book with a sense of freshness and expectation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Romans. Now, I got some explaining to do. Because I told you Romans at the beginning of 2024, and uh, I lied. So, turn to Romans. I'll just be honest with you, I I had intent of holding off, holding off, holding off, and then kicking off Romans in 2024. Amber will tell you, if somebody gives us chocolate, it it just doesn't last long. I I just, there's something about going after it and getting it into it, and and I, as I started looking at Romans, I just can't wait. So here we are. We're going to dive into this book and see um, what the Lord has for us in the book of Romans. Now, For introduction this morning, though, I want to give you 10 reasons why I preach through books of the Bible. This list grows. When I did Philippians, I think I shared some with you. When I did um, Genesis, I think I shared some with you, and the list continues to grow. And so I have 10 reasons why I'm committed. Now, I say I, but Dennis and Roger and Mitch and myself are committed to preaching through books of the Bible, um, verse by verse. For some of you that started attending PCBC mid-series, you probably thought, that is a weird chapter for him to be preaching. It's not weird at all, if you're going through the whole book. Um, And so, here are some reasons, and I I don't know how strong, how, how much more strongly I can communicate to you how committed I am to preaching through books of the Bible. What I want to say as I do this, beloved, is that I don't give this as throwing mud on not preaching through books of the Bible. I'm saying I think this is the best method for Dan Mason and probably the wisest method for every church. But topical preaching can be done and can be done well. I just think there's massive dangers in it. So, number one, it is the most natural way we read through a book in most circumstances. I give you a copy of of a book, and you start to read that, and you go, cool, I'll start at chapter 15. That'd make no sense. Why would you do that? You don't know who the characters are. Um, You don't know what the plot is. You don't know the beginning. You have no idea of the context. So it's the most natural way you would read through a book, and I think the most natural way you'd teach a book. If I said, well, I'm going to teach Romans 16 for 17 weeks and skip the whole context of the rest of the book, I would be consistently going back and going back and going back to remind you of the context. Number two, it grants us a far greater grasp on the book as a whole. Now, what I mean by this is we live in a world where 
I say in a Christian world. Bible verses are cut out and put in little spots. Um, sometimes they're put on a, etched on a piece of wood or a back wall, and we see a lot of verses. Um, and I don't think that's wrong to claim God's promises at all. But when you pluck a verse out of a context, you can make it say just about anything that you wish for it to say. You want to be careful with how you do that in reference to those verses. You don't want to pluck it out of context and say it means this or it means that. I, I heard one, I think it was a meme that said, I can do all things through a verse plucked out of its context. <laughs> Number three, it is a safeguard to protect us from seeking to string a group of verses pulled out of their context to support an idea we came up with. So I simply come and I say, hey, I've got 15 verses that backs me up on this. And you look at all 15 verses and you go, every single verse is plucked out of context, but it seems to appear to give what you want as far as leverage for your idea. There's a massive danger in that. Now, can it be done well? Absolutely. How would it be done? You'd go search out the context of every verse to make sure that the context supports the verse that you're using in its place to, to um, bring a teaching. Number four, it allows us to learn the different genres and styles of writing in the Bible. It allows us to learn the different genres and styles of writing in the Bible. We have been in narrative for four years together in Genesis. Um, now, I realize there's also some law, well, not necessarily law per se, but some teaching, some different kind of covenantal language throughout Genesis. But primarily, the genre is um, narrative. It's telling a story. Romans is uh, it's a letter, but it's a letter with a massive theological treatise throughout. And so different genres of the Bible are very, very good for us to understand. I think some massive heresies have been brought up because they ignore the genre of the text. Number five, it grows our endurance to stay with a book a lengthy amount of time. Now, <clears throat> um, all of us have different endurance levels, and I get that for anything. Um, some of us can, can endure long series through a book. Some of us are like, oh, Dan, get on with it. And all I can say is it's my responsibility to do this, so get over it. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm going to stay in a book for a long time, and I don't, I don't apologize for that. In any way, shape, or form, I don't apologize for that, because my desire is to honor Jesus Christ and honor his word. If my wife wrote me a love letter, and I read three lines of it, and I said, oh, that's kind of cool. Where's the honor for the writer? Where's the honor for the author? What's the authorial intent? All those wonderful questions. So I, I, take no, I give no apologies for taking time in the, in the study, but, beloved, I really genuinely, from my heart, believe it's good for a congregation to endure and work through books of the Bible. I think it's profitable for us. It blesses us. Um, I see it as like a sponge, and you squeeze that sponge until you, just, you can't get another drop out of it as best you can to understand to the best of your ability what is happening in God's Word. That endurance is good. Remember, the Apostle Paul warned us, right? Or he warned Timothy. The days will come where people will not endure sound doctrine. Now, that's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? That we go, well, sound doctrine's a good thing. It's like candy. That's a gift from God. Why would he say endure sound doctrine? Because there is a level of endurance to sound doctrine. 
Sometimes it can feel a little bit dusty or stuffy. Well, it's God's word. Endure. Endure. And blessing will flow from that endurance, I believe, with all my heart. But, beloved, we should not um, always seek for that instant gratification, that flash in the pan. There's times where that beautiful delayed gratification and endurance brings good stuff, especially in the study of the word. Number six, it shows that we genuinely believe all of God's word is important to us. Every last piece. When you read that list of names that are hard for all of us to pronounce, that's an inspired and errant piece of God's word. Now, does it, does it carry as much information within that? Well, you do the best you can to understand as much as you can of God's word. But I'll say this. When I started to walk through some of the names and walking through the lineage of Christ, you start putting pieces together. The more you, the more you read your Bible in its, whole, in its totality, And the more you see those names, you recognize the names and you start to see the fuller picture of what the Lord's been doing in redemption. I I had a man tell me one time, he said, "Uh, I don't go to Revelation, I never read Revelation. He said, well, if God wants me to know what that says, he'll he'll tell me. You've heard the joke about the guy who's, the house is flooding, right? And the flood's going up and the helicopter and the boat and all that stuff. And the guy dies and says, Lord, why didn't you save me? The Lord says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Here's his word. God has communicated in Revelation. The Lord has done that. And he calls us to meditate and go after his word. Number seven, it is faith-building in how the right text lands on the right Sunday. Now, this is what I found fascinating. And this is a new one. This one's new to this this series. Because I started thinking about over the years how many times a particular passage, particular Sunday, and I didn't select it. Not in the least. And I'll I'll be be very uh, transparent with you. There are Sundays where I have a text and I'm going, this is the wrong text for this Sunday. Now, remember, just from Dan's perspective, right? It's just a... It's a weird, kind of dark text. There were some of those in Genesis that just, this isn't the best Sunday for Mother's Day, or sermon for Mother's Day, or Father's Day, or whatever. And I will say, I will bear testimony to the sovereignty of God to have the exact perfect text that needed to be there and how it fits together. I just go home and tell Amber, I, I, you can't plan this. How many times have the call to worships and the sermons dovetailed with no plan over the years? Twelve years of standing in this pulpit and preaching, Sunday after Sunday going, Lord, I'm sorry for thinking I had the wrong text for this Sunday. You know what you're doing. It's also a tremendous blessing when somebody comes up and says, did somebody tell you about me? Which my answer is usually, yes, we bugged your house this afternoon. (laughs) No, I will tell you, it really does feel good to say, um, I started preaching three years ago in this text. That text landed on you because God wanted it. God has that, not, not Dan Mason. Number eight, it forces us at times to walk through portions of the scriptures that we would likely skip over. Now, I've already kind of spoken to that, but there are passages that just don't get spoken of very regularly. 
And how would you do it unless you said, I'm going to do a series on all the odd passages of the Bible? Well, I'm actually, I think it's far better to just do this. Preach through books of the Bible, and if you skip a verse, somebody in the congregation will go, hey, Dan, what's with verse 24? You didn't even talk about it. That's important, beloved. That's good. It forces us to not skip over tough parts of the Bible. Are there tough parts of the Bible? You bet. You bet. Going through Genesis with Lot and his daughters was an odd text to bring to this congregation. But it would be far worse to just ignore and skip than to bring that passage. And it forces me in the study to really do my homework, to figure out, and and just in my dependency upon the Lord, Father, how do I take this to the body? It's good for us. It's good for us. And Romans chock full with awkward things. It's going to be great. Number nine, it guards us from chasing after the fads of this world. Christian and non-Christian fads. Now you go, Dan, do Christians have fads? Really? You're asking that? Yeah, yeah, Christians have fads. We're some of the faddish people, faddish, (laughs) uh, people in the world, in the world. You go to a Christian bookstore, rarely do you find any book worth purchasing, in my opinion, and yet hundreds of necklaces and earrings. And all kinds of gadgets and doodads and things to hang up. We chase fads like crazy, like crazy. I would give you a massive list of books that just in my lifetime have become the book that will save the church. You know what? Jesus saved the church. Those books... Most of them, many of them, weren't worthy of reading. And yet they became number one bestsellers and were a huge fad in the church. There's also non-Christian fads where things are going on in the world and every preacher feels like he's got to respond to what the last politician or unsaved musician just said. They don't guide the the pulpit. The Word of God guides the pulpit. Lastly, number 10, this is the most important one. It's fun. Super fun. Now, I will say this, and I can say this from what I know from the Word, but I'll share from my experience preaching 17 and a half years. It has always just touched my heart how when you say, we're going to go through Romans, it sounds borderline boring, but when you actually get into the text, You're in the Bible. You're studying the Bible. The body's in the Bible. You come together. There is nothing more lively. There's nothing more exciting than actually having the pure word of God before us. And so I I take great joy in this. So there's my 10 reasons. I'll have 15 next time we go through another book. But those are just 10 that really, I mean with all my heart, you guys, I'm committed to this. I mean it. And I I intend to give the rest of my life to preaching Bible books. If the Lord would allow that, that's what I'd like to do. Now, let me read this quote to you uh, that kind of gives a further explanation of where I'm coming from in reference to preaching. Here, then, is the preacher's authority. It depends on the closeness of his adherence to the text he is handling. That is, on the accuracy with which he has understood it 
and on the forcefulness with which it has spoken to his own soul. In the ideal sermon, it is the word itself which speaks, or rather God in and through his word. The less the preacher comes between the word and its hearers, the better. What really feeds the household is the food which the householder supplies, not the steward who dispenses it. The Christian preacher is best satisfied when his person is eclipsed by the light which shines from the Scripture and when his voice is drowned by the voice of God. That's what I, that's what I desire, and I'm, beloved, I have no doubt that's what you desire. I hope with all my heart you don't come to PCBC to hear Dan. You come to hear the Word. Whether it's Dan, Mitch, Dennis, Raj, Pastor Mark, whoever's up here, when they open the book, that's where the excitement is. Not the man. It's not the person. But it's the Lord taking His Word to His people and accomplishing His work. I share all that because I want you to know that's the foundation in, in between my ears and in my heart I stand on when I bring the Word is I want to get out of the way and let the living God take the living word to you, his beloved, and feed your soul. So this morning, I'm simply just doing a flyover of Romans to give you an idea of what we're looking at, where we're going, and, um, and then we'll pray together. So just a few minutes thinking about this with you this morning. Romans was written somewhere between 55 to 57 A.D., this is agreed upon by just about every Bible scholar that I was finding this week. The authorship is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, um, this has never really ever been questioned, like ever, um, by anybody. Uh, maybe those who questioned, they were basically laughed at because of the amount of evidence that shows a Pauline authorship of the book of Romans makes reference to himself, it's his writing style, the connection he has to the church in Rome, all of the bits and pieces, perfect, that this is a Pauline letter. Who is the Apostle Paul? Well, if you're writing down notes, let me just give you some passages to have in the back of your mind. Acts chapter 9 and Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. Now, there's other passages in Acts that give his testimony and his background, but Acts chapter 9 and Philippians 3 will give you a good sense of who this man was. The Apostle Paul was a man who was profoundly powerful, passionate, well-trained, and excited to crush Christianity, to go and take people kicking and screaming to jail who were following the way. With all the passion and zeal in this young man's heart, he was a Pharisee, he was a Hebrew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a strong, powerful leader that I would imagine most Pharisees at the time said, this kid's future is so bright, he is so ready to go. Trained by Gamaliel, a well-respected leader and teacher at that time. And on his way to Damascus, a bright light takes his eyesight, he falls to the ground, and he's led by the hand, by his, those who are following him, into Damascus. Ananias is called upon by God to go to him. And before the living God, he lays his life down. I'm now a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And what you see in the Apostle Paul immediately, beloved, is a passion for Christ. 
a passion to herald this message. You could not see too many greater 180s in Scripture than what happens from Saul to Paul. This man is a profound, well-educated person. But he's also one who's separated, set apart for the taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which should cause you to scratch your head a little bit. So here's a Jew who has everything perfectly aligned for him to go to the Jews. But he doesn't. The Lord says, no, I'm going to separate him to go to the Gentiles. Even as he goes to Ananias, as God comes to Ananias, he says, you will go and I will tell him what he will suffer for my name. So Paul, here's your promise. You're going to get beat up and you're going to herald the message to the Gentiles. And what I love about the Apostle Paul, there's so many different bits and pieces, but what I love so deeply about him is the unflinching dedication to his calling. The unflinching dedication to his calling. God says, go. Yes, sir. Even when, in the book of Acts, he has some people come to him and say, don't you realize you're going to be tied up and beat up and let the, let the will of the Lord be done? unflinching in his dedication to the Lord. He is God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Pauline authorship, as I said, has never been substantially questioned, and the evidence of Pauline authorship is overwhelmingly evident. This man is the perfect one to bring the gospel, not only to Jews, which he does do. I'm not saying he does not do that, but primarily from the get-go, he is separated to go to the Gentiles. He's the perfect man to go to the Gentiles and show them the purity of the gospel. Remember, so many of the letters here in the New Testament, you have false teachers who are bringing in works of the law simultaneously with faith in Christ and seeking to make this mixed gospel. And what better than the Apostle Paul, who is a thoroughbred, to come on behalf of the Gentiles and shut the mouths of the Jews? and herald the pure, beautiful gospel. He's a perfect man for that job. The audience is the church that is at Rome, a massive metropolis filled with just about all that the world could afford. It's apparent from internal evidence of Romans, this is a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Bible scholars like to debate. I mean, I could put a period right there. <laughs> Bible scholars like to debate. But they like to debate over, was it primarily Jews and partial Gentiles, primary Gentiles, partially Jews? It's tough to tell from the text. The reason I say that is the way he writes is so as if it's to a group of Jews only. But then there's other portions where it's so clear, this is to a Gentile audience. And, it, and as I was reading, even this morning, just going over some more commentaries, they, there's like this back and forth where people are like, man, so is it primarily Jew, primary Gentile? My answer is, I believe primarily Gentile, absolutely there are Jews in the group there. What difference does that make? Very little. And what I mean by that, beloved, is that his point is all humans are in need of Christ. So there's nobody in the church that goes, well, I'm not as bad. No, you are. And, and, and he'll take chapters to make sure they know that. You are that bad. Also, the church was apparently fairly well-established. Now, as you'll read, as you, I hope you read through Romans, you'll see he hasn't been there to Rome. His desire is to be there. And again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, you should have your Bible open there, so just look at verse 8. 
Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So there has to be some kind of establishment that has taken place. This church is not a baby church necessarily, but perhaps an older group of believers. As far as I understand in the New Testament time, not that old, but for them to be somewhat well established that they are being heard about throughout the whole world. And look at verse 10. Paul says, always in my prayers, earnestly asking if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Simply pointing out that his desire has been to go to them for a while now. Also, the depth of the theological truth in this letter, I'm I'm curious, as the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, as he pens this letter, The theological truth, the level, the depth of it, tells me that the beloved that's going to accept this letter has some ability to receive that, to understand where he's coming from. What's the big idea of the letter? This is what I don't want you to miss, okay? Because for the next however many years throughout this study, this is the central idea, the righteousness of God. Okay, so that's, that's the central piece of this entire letter. Now, it's like looking at a, at a diamond where you look at different angles to see different parts of it or pieces of it um, because we are going to see how God is perfectly righteous. But in light of that, we're going to see the depravity of man. In light of that, we're going to see the need for a Savior. In light of that, we're going to see how the perfect righteousness of God is then going to be perfectly satisfied in the death of His perfect Son. And the righteousness of God is, I think, the best banner you could hang over the entire book. Are there other little bits and pieces? Yes, but all that is going to fit under that banner of the righteousness of God. And as I was, I was going to bed this morning, or going to bed last night, uh, or this, when I woke up this morning, I can't remember, I was thinking upon righteousness of God, righteousness of God. This is the question of what is right? Now imagine if you just walk down the street, you, you walk down the street in Tillamook this morning, and you just walk around over there and you say, hey, real quick, I got a question for you. And they go, ah, and then they run away. But then you say, no, no, it's not bad. And then they come back. And you say, what is Right? What's right? What's good? What is the way it should be? And what's so fascinating about this is if you ask that to this world, how many answers do you think you'll get? Probably one per person that's going to have a different than the other person you just asked. The righteousness of God is that which God says is right. When God says it's right, that's right. Righteousness is not something God is seeking to be. God is right. God is righteous. He's the one who declares that which is good, that which is right. And so when we say Dan Mason is righteous before God, on whose standard? Who said that? God said that. God declared that. He's the one who says what is righteous. And so the key theme, as we'll see throughout this, is righteousness. But also, after chapter 12, we're going to see a lot in reference to 
practical righteousness, meaning sanctification, how we're changing and growing in righteousness in Jesus Christ. The key theme of this book is the righteousness of God. I believe, beloved, this is the greatest exposition, the opening up and explanation of the truth of the gospel in your entire New Testament. In its detail and explanation of what we have here. The content of the epistle, uh, Dr. John Mitchell put this together and I thought it was pretty clear. He said, introduction, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. A bunch of S's. I love it when preachers do that. It's helpful for me. Because this is in letter form, it's going to start with an intro, just like Paul's letters always do. Introduction, but then sin, but then salvation, then sanctification, then God's sovereignty, and then our call to service, and then a conclusion, a conclusion to the end of the letter. Let me buzz through these really fast, you guys. This is in reference to the content of this letter. Here's some things we will be wrestling with together. The depravity of mankind, the lost state of all mankind, regardless of their background. There has never been salvation apart from faith in Christ throughout history. Being saved by grace does not remove the call to the Christian to live righteously. The absolute precious inheritance and blessings in this life through Christ. The life of the body of Christ and the treatment of one another. The Christian's relationship to government. The place of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament Christian. The relationship Jews and Gentiles have with each other in the church. God's relationship to the nation of Israel today in the coming, and in the coming future. God's sovereignty in the salvation of mankind. Paul's personal greetings to a beloved church. And then here's a bunch of shuns. Election, justification, sanctification, imputation, adoption, and glorification. I love those words. Those words are precious to me. To think that this is God's doing in our life. Election, justification, sanctification, imputation, adoption, and glorification. The book of Romans is a magnificent theological treatise within the literary structure of an epistle. The structure is very much a Pauline letter personally written to a group of believers but also contains some of the deepest teaching of gospel truths anywhere in your Bible. It has the classic layout of Paul's letters. Intro, greeting, gratitude for the saints, clear, strong gospel theology, application, conclusion, and closing personal comments. This is the letter of Romans. I have wanted to preach this letter since I was 16, and I've been scared to. And now here I am, more fearful than I've ever been to start preaching through the book of Romans. I'll share why in, in just a second. And I know I'm a little bit over time, guys. Let me just do this really quick, because I want to share just a few things in reference to the impact of Romans throughout the ages. Aurelius Augustine, St. Augustine, was a man who lived a life uh, prior to his conversion for himself. Drunkenness, sexual pleasure and all that the world could afford. 
one day he heard two kids singing a song. And a line in the song was, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he felt deep in his heart, why he didn't know, but I need to pick up God's word and read. I need to pick up a Bible and read. Now, I'm not a big fan of lucky dipping. That's where you just open up and drop your finger in there. But Augustine did that, and here's where his eyes landed. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Here's Luther. Luther says about Romans, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. Nobody more definitive than Martin Luther and how he talks. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, there's your challenge, beloved, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Romans 1, 16 and 17 was the passage that just exploded in Luther's mind, that his justification was by faith and by faith alone. John Wesley came to Christ by hearing a group of people reading Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, For three and one half years, I never took a text outside of the epistle of the Romans. I saw the church transformed. The audience filled the pews and then the galleries. And the work went on with great blessing. But just as important as the transformation of the church, there was the transformation of the preacher the disciplined necessity of treating every verse in an entire epistle formed habits of study that organized the mind of the preacher for the whole of his task. Pastor Tony, my mentor, when he was at Multnomah, Dr. John Mitchell was one of his professors, and Dr. Mitchell stood up to teach Romans. Let me make sure I get this clear. For the 60th consecutive year, Dr. Mitchell was 90 years old when he stood in front of that classroom of young people. And Tony said as he stood there saying that, he was crying. 90 years old, tears rolling down his cheek to teach the book he just taught 59 other times. And Dan Mason. Who cares? But... Uh, Romans 9 um, truly changed my entire world. As a 16-year-old high school student, because I saw a God that I, he was too big. And he looked so different than the one I thought I knew. So read Romans, meditate on Romans, and I pray God will add his blessing to us as a church family who give our time to this, okay? Um, for time's sake, uh, I was going to have the elders come up and pray, but I'm just going to close in prayer. We'll spend some time in fellowship after that. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I, I want to thank you for PCBC. Father, I thank you for uh, their love for the Word. That, that is an evidence that the Spirit of God has been at work. For Lord, by nature, we don't love your Bible. By nature, we don't love you. Supernaturally, we love you. Supernaturally, we love your Word. And so, dear God, we are a people that have been touched. We've been affected. We've been made new by your grace. And so, Holy Father, I pray that, that that flame, that spark would be fanned into flame. Lord, that we would come hungry, all of us come hungry, to this well of this book. And that Jesus would be magnified. Father, that your word is honored and glorified because we love you. We make much of it, Father, because we make much of you. So bless the years. Bless the years in front of us, God, in this book. And I pray that PCBC, regardless of what we see and endure and go through as a church body, Father, we would be a consistent people who keep coming back to the well of the Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.